morning. Revelation chapter 19. It is so good to see each one of you here this morning. We're glad to see some that we haven't seen in quite a few weeks, and we're glad to, uh, that you're able to be here this morning. I know a number of things are taking place that are allowing that to happen, and we rejoice that you're here today. If it's good to be in the house of God this morning, say amen. amen. Revelation chapter 19, the songs so many of them have pointed us to what we have been focusing our attention on. We've been looking at the last things, the end times, the days that are yet to come. It is interesting that we always are drawn to the final scenes, the final acts of things. We like to see how things are going to turn out, how things are going to end. Many times when you're maybe walking through the woods, you see a trail and you want to know where that goes. Where does that end up? Usually it ends up at something pretty spectacular because normally people don't wear trails to places where there's nothing to see. But, you know, sometimes you get on a trail and you get to the end and you wonder what on earth did anybody ever come here for to start with. When we're reading books, we like to, we like to know how it ends. Have you ever picked up a book and you just said, man, I just couldn't put that book down. I wanted, to, I wanted to see how things turned out. Or you start watching a movie or you start watching a television program and you want to you see how things end. You want to see that final act. The final act of a drama or a story is that moment when all the loose ends are brought together. All the questions are answered. All the themes are woven together to help us understand what has been the point of it all. And God does that in the great drama of redemption in the chapters that we're going to look at this morning, Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 20, as we come to the final act. Now, this is not the end of the story. There is great glory yet to be experienced in chapters 21 and 22. But this is the final act of redemption. And I want you to see three things this morning, these three very important events that point us, most of all, point our attention to Christ. Don't look at these passages, don't look at these verses this morning hoping to just better understand, have a better knowledge. This is not about filling our minds with information. It's not about satisfying our curiosity. It is pointing us to Christ, and as it points us to Christ, it is about us living and acting differently than we do. As we look at this, I want you first of all to see that this, these stories or this account points us to Christ as the bridegroom of the church. In chapter 19, I want you to drop down to verse 7 with me. Let me back up to verse 5. A voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the vo voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. This role of Christ that is revealed in each of these three are ones that were given to the Son by the Father. Jesus will speak about those that you have given me, the believers that you have given to me, the, the ones who follow me. We have been given by the Father to the Son as his bride. We'll see how he is the king and how Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about how Christ has the kingdoms put under him by the Father. The Father has put all things under his feet. It is something that the Father is giving to the Son. And then we'll see that he is the great judge of the universe and it is the authority to judge that has been given to the Son 
by the Father. But he gives this bride. And this is the beautiful mystery of Christ in the church. You remember in Ephesians chapter 5 how Paul says, I show you a mystery. When I talk about the husband and the wife, I'm talking about Christ in the church. It is important for us to think when we see Christ as the bridegroom that he is the one who loved the church and gave himself for it. This reminds us of his grace. It reminds us of the grace of Jesus Christ. I am so thankful when we look at what the next accounts, these next events will show us about humanity. I am glad that I have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm glad that in my guilt and in my sin, God's grace has been extended to me through Jesus. I want you to know this morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, that you are guilty before God. Every person who has ever been born is guilty before God. We are sinners, not just because we sin, but because we are born with a sinful nature. But God in His grace has extended salvation, the gift of salvation you trust Him as your Savior this morning, you can experience the blessedness of being a part of not only the family of God, but of the bride of Christ. And it's at this point in time, following the great Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, that we will have been prepared. He says the, the marriage of the Lamb has come, for His wife has made herself ready. The Holy Spirit is at work in the church right now, making us ready to be the bride of Christ. Whenever God does a sanctifying work in your life, that is a part of him preparing his bride for this moment. He is preparing us. He is getting us ready. He is washing us with the water of the word, Ephesians 5 says. He gave himself for the church that he might sanctify it. And so the work of making us holy, don't be afraid of the word sanctification or sanctify. It simply means to make holy. And God is at work making his people holy to prepare us to be his bride, to prepare us for this wedding moment. There's some great songs that come to mind about the weddings, but I think about the, the old song, is that wedding music that I hear? And I think about this moment. I'm excited for this day. I'm excited for the day when my salvation will be completed. And I will be dressed, as this passage will tell us, in the white robes of the righteousness of the saints. He says he has, they have made themselves ready. Look at verse 8. And to her, his wife, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. It is the grace of God that brings us into his bride. And it is the grace of God that prepares us to be his bride. I don't stand before God in my goodness. I am glad that I do not. I will stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? Can you imagine having to stand before God? You know, some people have this idea that when we stand before Him, it's going to be this great scale. There's going to be my good works over here and my bad works, and hopefully my good works will outweigh my bad works. Let me tell you something. If that was the case, every single scale would be tipped completely to the bad works because Isaiah says that even my righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. Why? Because it's my righteousness. But I don't stand before him in my righteousness. I don't stand before him in the dirty rags of self-righteousness. I stand before him in the pure white linen of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been granted unto me because I am being made holy and will be made holy in the sight of God. 
Jesus Christ, we see his grace because he is our bridegroom. Jesus will return as the new groom of the bride. And we see him coming as not only a groom, but as a king. Look in verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. This is not the same white horse that you read about in Revelation chapter 6. When the first seal is opened and the white horse comes, it's the movement of peace that will begin the tribulation period. It will be that moment when man will think he has made peace. But man cannot bring peace. The Neelan saying in the 9 o'clock hour, there will be peace. And I want to tell you, this is the peace. This is when peace comes. But it comes not with a bow with no arrows like Revelation chapter 6. It comes with a mighty sword. Look at this in verse 11. He that sat upon the white horse was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. This is the lamb that's been described throughout Revelation, but now he is coming as a conquering king. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. This is not the blood of his conquest, but it's the blood of the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. His name is called, verse 13, the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We've just seen who is wearing the fine linen, white and clean. It is the believers. It's the church. We will return with him. You see, this is one of the great distinctions between the rapture when Christ comes back in the air and we, the church meets him in the air and is taken, the believers are taken, and here when he comes back to the earth with the believers. And he comes back and we're ready for battle. These are the armies of heaven that will come. And he will gather, this passage will tell us that we will gather against, we will come to battle against all the armies of the earth, of all that are left at the end of seven years of tribulation. The Antichrist and his hordes will come and they will be ready to do battle against the Almighty. And the word of God will come back. Jesus Christ will come back. We will follow him, but we won't have to, we won't have to strike a blow. He says he will destroy them with the word, that sword that proceeds out of his mouth. Isn't it amazing what God can do with a word? He created this entire universe with a word. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. God spoke. Think about what he has done to, for salvation. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The word came. Jesus' word came as the word. Think about what Jesus could do with one word. Remember when the disciples are in the boat and the storm comes? What does Jesus step up and say? Peace, be still. He doesn't have to do anything. He simply speaks the word. And he's going to win this battle with simply a word. Why? Because he is the king of kings, verse 16. On his vesture and on his thigh a name is written, king of kings and lord of lords. There have been people on this earth with great authority and great power. And people get a little concerned anytime man starts to accumulate power because we've seen what has happened. We've seen when the Hitlers 
and the Alexander the Greats and the Roman Caesars when they took too much power to themselves. And we've seen what has taken place and we begin to get a little concerned and especially here in our nation where we're used to liberty and freedom and we begin to get concerned. I want to tell you that man has never ever had the power that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will have. And he will return with us behind him to do battle to win this battle that we often call the battle of Armageddon. This is the second coming of Christ, and we will get to be there to be a part of it. He will come as king, and then as king, he will rule for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, an angel comes down, and he takes Satan. I love how this describes this in verse 2. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, just in case you're not sure who he's talking about, which is the devil and Satan. And he's going to cast him into the bottomless pit in a great chain. He binds him for a thousand years. You go through this and there's thrones. And those that sit upon him on the, are the believers, those who have come through great tribulation, those who have been the martyrs and the witnesses of the testimony and did not receive the mark of the beast or the number of his name. They did not worship his altar. They will rule and reign with Christ. This will be an amazing time of peace. There will be no war. There will be peace. There will be great worship that takes place during this time. Jesus himself will be the king. I want to tell you that there are those who think if we could just get the right person in charge, everything in this world would be great. If we could just get the, the right person in control, if we, could just have, if we could just have good leaders, I want to tell you there's never been a king, there's never been a president, there's never been any leader that will be like the king, Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you that he will sit upon the throne, but he is already the king. I'll say that again. He will sit upon the throne at this point, but he is already the king. He already bears the name king of kings and lord of lords. And I don't care which party, which person is in charge in a nation or around the world. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. And he will come back and he will rule for that thousand years. It's going to be an amazing time. Throughout the prophetic books, there's words about what this is going to be like. The verses, there's hundreds of verses that talk about this kingdom. It's going to be a time when the Bible says the lion will lay down with the lamb. It's really going to be a restoration to the original creation in one sense when the fall and the curse is lifted. Those who go into the millennial kingdom will be those who are believers. No one will die unless they resist against the king. The Bible says he will rule with a rod of iron. He will, he will put down resistance promptly. It will not be given an opportunity to spread until the end of the time. Jesus will rule. There will be great worship. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says that the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine what that's going to be like to live in a time where there's no war, there's no conflict? There's no illness, there's, there's little death, if at all. And to, for a thousand years, six or seven times in this chapter, he's clear about that number. Jesus will rule. This reminds us not only is Jesus the groom, and it reminds us of his grace. He is the king, and it reminds us of man's guilt. Because let me tell you what's going to happen at the end of this thousand-year period of time. Look at this verse. Verse 7, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Surely, after a thousand years of living under the perfect rule of Jesus Christ, 
Surely, after a thousand years of no war, surely, after a thousand years of no sickness, no conflict, perfect peace, perfect worship, the work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts, surely Satan will have no influence except that man is still man. And those who are born during this period of time, many of them will not be believers. And when Satan is loosed, you know what they will do? Look what happens. Verse 8, he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. They're going to gather themselves together to come against God one more time. Do you know what God has done in every period of time that he has dealt with humanity? He has dealt with humanity with human government. He has dealt in the age of innocence. He has dealt with man in the time of the law. For 2,000 years, he's dealt with us in grace. And what's going to happen at the end of the time of grace? Man is still rebelling against God. And after seven years, look at that, 2,000 plus years of grace and seven years of justice. And at the end of seven years of justice, after man has continually blasphemed the name of God, what is going to take place? Man is going to come in war against God. And so God gives one last opportunity. You want to talk about the guilt. We stand guilty before God, not merely because of our works, but because we continually rebel and reject the authority of God and God's existence. And at the end of a thousand years, man will one last time lift his fist in the face of God and say, I will not submit. And God this time will not send the army with Jesus. With this time, look in verse 9. They went out up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil is cast into the lake of fire where the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet are where they'll be tormented night and day forever. Man is guilty before God. God has extended in the person of Jesus Christ grace. When you refuse to receive Jesus Christ, it is not merely making a religious choice. You are telling God, no. You are saying, God, I will not receive your grace. That is why in the book of, uh, book of Romans, Paul says, all the world will become guilty before God. And what will happen? There will be one further magnification of Jesus. We've seen him as the groom. We've seen him as the king. But the world will see him as the judge. Look at the last part of this chapter. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. They're going to be judged. Oh, do you think you're saying if I could do the things in the scriptures that I could somehow make it into heaven? No, that's not what that's saying at all. God's going to use the commands of his scripture to show every single person who has ever lived, if they've not trusted in Jesus Christ, they have broken God's law. What about those that have never heard the law? What about those that have never heard the gospel? Romans 1 is clear that every single person that has lived on this earth has seen the invisible things of God in the visible things of creation. 
and they have been given enough truth that if they will respond, but what does every single person do? They rebel against God. They do what man is going to do after a thousand years. They do what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. I've heard people say, oh, man, Adam and Eve, how could they? They lived in a perfect environment. They were perfect people. How could they sin? Let me tell you that if you were standing in their place, you and I would do exactly what they did. And you and I would do exactly what these people would do if it wasn't for the grace of God. The grace of God, this shows us the greatness and the glory of God. He sits upon a great white throne. Not only are those who are not written, look, the reason that they are cast into the lake of fire is that their name is not found written in the book of life. Jesus said that the words that I speak will judge them, judge them in the last day. That's the books. But he said, it's those who do not believe in me. That's the book. The most important thing in this world is, is your name written in the book of life? If your name's not found written in the book of life, they're cast into the lake of fire. And death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. I'm glad that he says those that are part of the first resurrection, that's us. The second death has no power. I'm glad to know that through the grace and mercy of God, not through my own righteousness, but because I'm clothed in that fine white linen, I'll never face the flames of hell. There's a great story about some of the pioneers in early years going across America and a, a prairie fire came, and some of, the, some of the pioneers went, and they stood in a place where the fire had already passed. And as the flames got closer, one of the little girls looked at her father, and she said, I'm afraid. He said, you don't have to be afraid because the fire has already passed here. I want you to know that we won't, fa- we won't have to face the judgment and the fire of God's wrath because Jesus Christ has already taken it upon him, and we stand in Jesus Christ. But the glory of God, it is a great white throne before whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. God's greatness will be manifested in such a way. Let me tell you something. We need to come to have a clear awareness of the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God. I'm glad that I have been called a friend of God, but God's not my good buddy. He is the God of this universe. He's not just merely the man upstairs. He is the God that even heaven and earth cannot stand to be before the glory and the majesty and the greatness. And that is why as we look through these accounts, we see in the wedding, he says, give honor to the omnipotent God. And when he comes back as king, he says, give honor because he is the almighty God. And now he is seated upon the throne and heaven and earth will will pass away and flee away, and every knee will bow before him. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And even Satan himself will bow before Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward. When I look at all the vileness and the wickedness that that rascal has done in this world and he has done and he has caused to take place and he will bow and he will kneel and he will acknowledge what he already knows that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And we will gather around the throne eternal to express worship to the glory of God. 
The Bible says that those from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every kindred will bow before the king. Aren't you glad that he is not a king for us to fear? He is a king for us to worship. The choir sang earlier, who is worthy? He is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise. And when we gather here this morning, let me tell you what we're doing. We are gathering in a small way to foreshadow the eternal worship that will take place when those of every tribe and tongue and nation and kindred will gather in the presence of the king, in the presence of the judge of this universe, and we will worship him and we will praise him because of his grace and because of his glory and because in, his, in our guilt he extended salvation to us. We will exalt him as King of kings and Lord of lords. This morning, if you've never trusted Christ, please, please, please do not leave this place. Don't let another moment pass without trusting Christ as your Savior. Because one day, one day you will stand before this judge. And you will not only stand before him, you will kneel before him. And every single person that either through a rebellious war or through sin or through selfishness has rebelled against God and his authority, they will kneel. Those of us who have trusted Christ, when we come together like this, don't you, don't you love being here to worship? Don't you love how the music has led us to worship God this morning? Every time we do that, I rejoice. I was standing in the back earlier, and I was watching, and I was seeing the, the, the glow on some faces as you were worshiping. And as they sang, oh, 4,000 tongues to sing and hands to raise, I saw your hands raised, and I saw you experiencing worship, and it's a wonderful blessing to worship now. But as you worship him, Remember that that will be the day when we will also kneel in his presence and we will exalt his name and we will give him glory and we will give him praise. And when we do it here together with our brothers and sisters, it is just a foretaste of glory to come when we will be there with our groom and we will be there before our king and we will bow in the presence of the great judge. And we will know that we are there clothed in his righteousness because of his grace and because of his mercy. If that doesn't put, your, put you on your knees before God, I don't know what will. Father, thank you that you are a glorious God. Father, my mind and my heart are filled today say with my brothers and sisters in Christ, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. To say worthy is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the almighty God, the bridegroom who gave his life for the church, the king who will rule in perfect peace and harmony. And Lord, the judge who will set everything to right and prepare us to enter into an eternal state of glory and joy and peace and worship in your presence.
Father, may our hearts be filled with an overwhelming awareness of the glory of God.